Earlier this week when I was working on this message, I, um, I finished a great introduction to this sermon. It was all about luck and chance and how we try and bend chance and, and the odds to our favor. When I was done, none of you were ever going to buy a lottery ticket again because you realize how impossible it is for you to win the lottery. And last night at about 10.30 when I was reviewing my sermon, which I do on, on Saturday nights, um, I realized that that introduction just isn't going to fly this morning. It isn't going to work. Because ever since Wednesday, Charleston, South Carolina has been on my heart and on my mind. It just, I just can't get away from it. You, you, I, you've seen the news, right? Wednesday morning prayer service at Emmanuel AME Church and and a young white man joins that, that all-black church prayer service there and ends the prayer service by shooting and killing nine of the people there, hoping to start a race war in our nation, right? And my heart hurts for them. I can't imagine, they're having church there this morning. I can't imagine what it's like for them to enter into that building with all that grief and all that hurt. I don't know if you watched if you've watched some of the responses from family members of the victims, talk about grace overcoming hatred. Talk about love overcoming evil. They are modeling what it means to be followers of God in the midst of, of a horrible situation. And I sat there last night at my kitchen table and I thought, we're talking about the providence of God. I could, I could talk about lottery tickets and my lucky Detroit Tigers baseball hat, but that doesn't seem exactly appropriate. It seems like there's a bigger question that just rolled through my mind last night. It's been rolling through my heart ever since Wednesday. Where was God Wednesday morning? In Charleston, South Carolina, right? Is God the one that we should blame for these nine good people being shot? Was this part of his great plan? Did God say, on Wednesday morning, here's what I'm going to do? I'm going to destroy this prayer group meeting with gunfire and hatred and evil. Is, is, is God the one to blame for this? If not, then why, why didn't he at least stop it? Couldn't he have done something to stop it? All the why questions. seems like that's where I need to be. That's where we need to be. It's a question that all of us either have asked in our own lives or a question that I guarantee you, you will ask sometime, why, God? Why? How do we understand this evil, this horrible tragedy? Maybe out there, but you're going to ask it for your own life sometime, too. Why? God, how do you fit into all of this? I think we need to start this morning by understanding that the events in this world around us, the events in Charleston, the events wherever you look, the events in your life, they, they aren't random. They aren't just thrown out there to the power of chance. But the Bible doesn't allow room for, for this good luck, bad luck force. It doesn't allow room for karma. It doesn't allow room for chance. The Bible makes it clear that there is God. There is God, not chance. Right, the Apostle Paul preached that to the, to the people in the city of Athens when he was walking in Athens in the New Testament, right? He was looking at all their idols that they had, and he found the idol to the unknown God. And he realized that that, that was really 
you know, they saw it as an idol to appease the God of chance, the God of luck, the one that they didn't know about, the one that they couldn't control. And Paul makes it clear to them that that force that they're, that force that they're looking at, that they're looking for, is truly God. It's the one true God. This is what he says in Acts 17 to them. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Okay, so, so last week, if you were here last week, you looked at God's message in creation. Right? We, we understood that, that God who was there at the beginning and God who is, who is there at the end of the story is also the God who is right here in the middle of the story is also the God who is engaged with our world, who's engaged with the world that he loves, and he's engaged in your life at this very moment. God is in control. Okay, let me go back to our confessions this morning. We're going to go back there a few times. The Belgic Confession calls this truth the providence of God. Right, I, want, I want you to to state with me what we believe using the words of the Belgic Confession about the providence of God. With the church for centuries, I want you to declare this with me. Would you read this with me? We believe that this good God, after he created all things, did not abandon them to chance or fortune, but leads and governs them according to his holy will in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. That's, if you think about what you just said, those are some pretty profound words. We just declare that there's no such thing as luck, there's no such thing as chance, there's no such thing as fortune. There are no horrible consequences that will come to you if you walk under a ladder or step on a crack or see a black cat walk in front of you. And me wearing my lucky hat to a Tigers game makes no impact on the outcome of the game. There is not some impersonal force out there waiting to either pour blessing into your life or destroy your life on some random whim. Instead, we just declared that there is a personal force in control, and it is our God. And God did not create this world, we just said. God did not create this world and then set it off spinning just to see once what would happen. Let things just go on their own. Our God is intimately involved in our world and in our lives. We just said it. God leads and governs all things in such a way that nothing happens in this world without his orderly arrangement. It's a pretty amazing statement, right? That's a pretty awesome thought. Our God is involved in every detail of our lives, day in and day out. He's in control. He is for us, not against us, and he loves us. That's the truth you declared. Now, that's 
pretty awesome and wonderful to think about when things are going well, right? Right? When we land that new job after searching for so long, we attribute it to God's goodness and God's control. Right? When, when that check arrives in the mail just in time to cover those unexpected expenses that came, we credit God, rightfully so. Right? When that accident, you're driving in the car, the accident is barely avoided. Right? Cars miss each other by a fraction of a second. Thank you, God, for your control. Right? When when you find just the right person to marry, got to do Dixon and Jen Pettijohn's wedding on Friday. When you find just the right person, out of all the people in the world, thank you, God, for bringing us together. When the surgery and the treatment goes well, God, you're good. We rightfully credit God's control and his providence in our lives, and everything works out just right. But what about when things don't work out so well? What about when they don't go as we planned and wished? How do we understand God's, God's control when the surgery fails, when the treatment doesn't do what it's supposed to do? Or when the timing is just wrong and the two cars meet head on? Or when the child doesn't get better? Or when the marriage doesn't work out? Or when, how do you... How do the people in Nepal understand the providence of God when the earthquake just a month or two ago collapsed their homes and crushed their family members? How do we understand the providence of God when people we love fall ravaged to, to the reality of cancer, as many of you have had family members, as I have? How do you understand the providence of God when ISIS sorts out Christians and beheads them? How... How do the people in Charleston, South Carolina this morning understand the providence of God when their pastor and eight other people are gunned down in the middle of prayer simply because they're African American? If God is so in control of everything that happens and nothing happens without his orderly arrangement, as we just declared, how in the world can we explain these terrible things? You know, the answer, the short answer can be summarized in one word. Sin. Right? Last week we recognized that, that God arranged this, this creation of his at the very start in such a way. It was perfect. And this creation brought wholeness and healing and joy and peace. And it was awesome. He gave us that good creation, but he also gave us the freedom to impact that order if we so choose and we so chose. We introduced sin into this creation. We demanded that God make room for sin in his creation order, and so he did. We decided that God should make room for evil and for Satan. We decided... That in this perfect creation, there should be space for pain, and there should be space for death, and there should be space for disappointment. And so the second part of Article 13 of the Belgic Confession recognizes that incongruity that we all feel, that we feel from Charleston, that you feel from all the things that happened in your life. When we say that God is in control and then these things happen, so join me again. This, it makes this statement looking for an explanation. Say this with me. 
Yet God is not the author of, nor can he be charged with, the sin that occurs. For his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he arranges and does his work very well and justly, even when the devils and wicked men act unjustly. Okay, so you and I, humanity, we have set the enemies of God free in this creation, where once there was a perfect garden, free from the influence of evil, now there's a place for devils and wicked men to act unjustly. That's the price we pay for sin. That's the price God pays for giving us free will. Right? It's our free will that makes it possible for us to freely love God, not as a robot, but as people who truly fall in love with him as he desires. It's our free will that allows that. And it's also our free will that brought death into this world, that gave disease the power to hurt, that put irresponsible people behind the wheel of a car, that put, puts guns in the hands of murderers. And God's providence must now deal with the reality of evil and the forces of Satan because we have chosen to include it in this present reality. How God's power and control in this world works within the reality of pain and suffering and evil in our lives, I'll tell you up front, will forever be a question that we're searching for the answer for. Until Jesus comes again and makes all these wrongs that we've invited into this world and makes them all right, we will forever be asking God why. In every instance of pain, in every instance of suffering, in every evil occurrence, why, God? Why didn't you do something? Why are you silent? Or why me? Why now? Why this? It's a question that we've been asking for centuries. Right, perhaps the greatest example that question is the book of Job in the Old Testament. You probably heard the story of Job. Job was a righteous and godly man whom Satan put in his sights. And God defends Job. Right? He won't let Satan destroy him, but Satan still does his worst. One by one, he steals Job's wealth, first of all, and then he steals Job's family. Then he steals away Job's own health. Talk about suffering. Read that story sometime. And Job is left asking God all these why questions, just like we do. And he's pretty direct with God. I right, read through that book, you'll see Job shaking his fist at God, wondering why, looking for some kind of explanation. And in the end, God does come to Job. But you'll find as you read through that book, that God doesn't come to Job and explain himself to him. God doesn't answer all of Job's why questions. God doesn't give complete understanding because complete understanding is beyond our human comprehension. The ways of God are beyond the ways of men. But God does come and give Job the one answer that he really needs. And at the end of the book, Job is completely satisfied. Job asks why, and God comes with the answer to the question of who.
God gives Job himself. He reminds Job that he is still God. And no matter how much it seems like Satan is winning, no matter how much it seems like like evil is in in control and that sin is destroying everything, No matter how much it seems like we are losing and God is losing and he's powerless, the truth is that at the foundation of this world, at the foundation of this creation, and at the foundation of your life and my life is the truth that nothing will ever be able to separate us from the love and the grace and the salvation power of our God. And that for every unjust action that Satan inflicts upon us, God answers with justice either in this world or the next. And at the end of the book, that knowledge is enough for Job. It's good enough for him. God leaves Job and he leaves us, yes, with a mystery that we won't be able to solve. But he leaves us with the truth that we can be confident in. We can't understand every part of why things happen, but we can be confident in the victory that still belongs to our God. And I'm certain that's what they're talking about and preaching about in South Carolina this morning. Even in the face of sin and pain and death and evil in this world and in our lives, we proclaim, as you did with the songs you sang earlier, that God is still in control. And that knowledge, that belief, that faith makes all the difference in how we live our lives. If you truly believe it, it changes everything. When we're able to accept that mystery, we can find that God's providence brings us a confidence in our daily living. One more time, read with me. Belgic Confession, Article 13, the end of it. This is the result of of our understanding of God's providence. Say this with me. This doctrine gives us unspeakable comfort since it teaches us that nothing can happen to us by chance, but only by the arrangement of our gracious Heavenly Father. He watches over us with fatherly care, keeping all creatures under His control so that not one of the hairs on our heads, for they are all numbered, nor even a little bird can fall to the ground without the will of our Father. In this thought we rest, knowing that he holds in check the devils and all our enemies who cannot hurt us without his permission and will. To catch that the mystery of God's providence gives us comfort. Knowing that God is in control, even when we can't understand it, even when we're busy asking why in the face of the brokenness of this world, even when it seems like he isn't in control to our minds, knowing that God is in control, accepting that on faith, makes all the difference in how we live. We know that our lives are not tossed about by the whims and the powers of chance. There are not random forces of good and evil that might grab a hold of you at any time and rip your life apart. We aren't slaves to luck, good luck or bad. We are always under the control and care of our God who loves us. Even when Satan is unleashing 
his fury of hate and destruction, even when the reality of sin in this broken world is trying to break us and break our faith, God is still surrounding us with his power, the power of his love, the power of his grace, the power of Jesus Christ to redeem and restore. Knowing that God is in control gives us three possible responses to all these events that shape our lives. First of all, when things go wrong in our lives, when things go against us, we can be patient. And we can re respond like the psalmist in Psalm 38. When his life was in turmoil, the psalmist responded by saying, I wait for you, O Lord. You will answer, O Lord my God. I wait for God. I trust in him. Perhaps the greatest words of hope found in the Bible unexpectedly come from the book of Lamentations. It's not a very popular book, not one that we read often, because Lamentations is, is a depressing book. It's a book full of sorrow and suffering. It's the suffering of God's people. It's a book of their tears. It's written in the midst of horrible suffering for the nation of Israel. Their, their, their nation is crumbling. They're about to be hauled off into captivity. And in fact, in that time and age, to be defeated by another nation, to be hauled off into captivity, you're talking about bloodshed. You're talking about families ripped apart. You're talking about you're getting pulled away from your home and you're getting moved somewhere else where you will be a slave probably for the rest of your life and your children will be ripped away. From. This is horrible stuff. Their nation's falling apart, and they're asking God, why? Why this destruction, God? Why the pain? Why the suffering? And Lamentations chapter 3 begins with a dismal statement. The author says, I am a man who has seen affliction, and goes on to list all the affliction, all the horrible things that he's seen and experienced. You could put yourself in his place. Right? Many of you this morning could list the pains the injustices in your life, or maybe even just one that's still eating at you. And you wonder about God with God. Say this, so this author lists all these horrible things. And starting at verse 19 of chapter 3, we find perhaps the greatest testimony of trust in God. He says, I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I well remember them, and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait on him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him. To the one who seeks him, it is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. I will wait. I'll wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Saying God is still in control. He's still God. He's still good. His salvation and his love still continue. We can have patience along with this writer of the book of Lamentations. We can have patience when things are tough because we know that God's faithfulness is new every morning. And his compassions, they never fail. Patient in affliction. Secondly, we can be thankful. 
when things go well. We give credit where credit is due, and that's to God. Our blessings aren't due to fate dropping the Powerball number in our favor. Our blessings aren't due to us following just the right superstitions to make things work out our way. We aren't helpless in the face of some impersonal power that cares nothing about us. Our blessings are due to the providence and the grace and the power of God who demonstrates his love for you and for me day in and day out. Be thankful to him when things go well. And finally, thirdly, we can live in confidence at all times, knowing that nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God. Satan's fighting the battle. He's doing, a, he's doing a number on this earth. But the victory, the ultimate war has been won. Jesus won that victory when he died and rose again on that cross. And so the apostle Paul declares with confidence the same thing we can still declare today. That I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Jesus Christ our Lord. How can he say that? How can we say that in the face of all the questions and challenges that we face? How can you say that? How can the people in Charleston say that? Well, we can boldly declare that only when we truly believe that God is in control and that through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, salvation and restoration will will come to us and will come to this creation. There is no power. Not the power of guns, not the power of hatred, not the power of death, not the power of disease, not the power of anything. There is no power that can steal the love of God away from us. There is no power that will be able to steal away God's coming victory. That is the confidence we can live with in the face of the questions of our lives. sure that that some of you here this morning would love to have me explain to you the specific whys of your specific hurt and pain from God's perspective. Here's why. Here's why cancer. Here's why disability. Here's why divorce and unemployment and death. Here's why dreams are dashed and hopes are crushed. Here's why God didn't do something. You know, my answer to your why question will not bring you satisfaction. The the why is that the brokenness and pain that we experience in this world is part of the free will that God has given us and the sin and the brokenness that we chose. That answer is not going to satisfy your why. Because satisfaction doesn't come in the answer to the why. Satisfaction comes in the answer to the who. Who can give us assurance and peace in the middle of our pain? Who promises us ultimate victory, even in the face of real loss? Who empowers the families of the victims in South Carolina to offer grace and forgiveness? Who's empowering them to walk into that church and to worship God 
still this morning? Who will guarantee victory to us? A future where there will be no more pain and no more sorrow and no more tears. Who will give us strength and comfort as he walks with us through the valley, even the valley of the shadow of death? Who gives us strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow? Only one. It's in God. That we can be patient and thankful and confident in the midst of anything that comes our way. I'm going to close with some prayer this morning with a prayer that, that has been sent around the nation to churches all around the country. It's a prayer that, that they're asking every church in, in, the, in the country to pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Charleston. And so we're going to pray specifically for them with this prayer. And you can apply it specifically to your hurt in your life as well. Would you pray with me? We stand before you today, O oh Lord, hearts broken, eyes weeping, heads spinning. Our brothers and sisters have died. They gathered and prayed and then were no more. The prayer-soaked walls of the church are spattered with blood. The enemy at the table turned on them in violence while they were turning to you in prayer. We stand with our sisters. We stand with our brothers. We stand with their families. We stand to bear the burden in Jesus' name. We cry out to you, O Lord, our hearts breaking, eyes weeping, Heads spinning. The violence in our streets has come into your house. The hatred in our cities has crept into your sanctuary. The brokenness in our lives has broken into your temple. The dividing wall of hostility has crushed our brothers and sisters. We cry out to you, may your kingdom come. May it be on earth as it is in heaven. We cry out for our sisters. We cry out for our brothers. We cry out for their families. We cry out for peace in Jesus' name. We pray to you today, O oh Lord. Our hearts breaking, eyes weeping, souls stirring. We pray for our enemies. We pray for those who persecute us. We pray to the God of all comfort to comfort our brothers and sisters in their mourning. We pray that you would bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. We pray that you would give them the oil of joy instead of mourning. We pray that you would give them a garment of praise in place of a spirit of despair. We pray for our sisters. We pray for our brothers. We pray for their families. We pray for their comfort in Jesus' name. We declare together, O oh Lord, with hearts breaking, eyes weeping, souls stirring. We will continue to stand and cry and weep with our brothers and sisters. We will continue to make a place for peace for even the enemies at our table. We will continue to open our doors and our hearts to all those who enter them. 
we will continue to seek forgiveness as we have been forgiven. And we will continue to love in Jesus' name because you taught us that love conquers all. We declare our love for you, our sisters. We declare our love for you, our brothers. We declare our love for you, their families. We declare our love as one body, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. And we don't allow you to grieve alone today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.